If you have your Bibles today, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to Ezra chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles, all the verses will be on the screen. But welcome to week 4 of our Ezra-Nehemiah series where we are looking at the work of God in renovating and restoring His people through the renovating and restoring work of the temple of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem. And let me just kind of preface where we're going this way, kind of frame it this way. One of my favorite all-time, and I need to say kids movie, even though it might be just one of my favorite all-time movies, is The Lion King. I'm not talking about this new one that they run, but I'm talking about the 1994 animated awesome Lion King. If you have ever seen it, Simba, of course, was the promised heir of his father's kingdom, but because of an evil scheme by his uncle Scar, Simba was driven into exile, overwhelmed with the guilt of his father's death. And while in exile, he is befriended by Timon and Pumbaa, a meerkat and a warthog who convince him that where he is at is actually paradise, a place with no worries for the rest of your days. It's a problem philosophy that they live by but anyway deep down inside Simba he longed for home in fact he knew he didn't belong in exile so when he found out that his homeland had gone downhill he vows to return he vows to take on his uncle Scar he vows to reclaim the kingdom to its rightful owner which is him and Timon and Pumbaa reluctantly accompany Simba back to Pride Rock, and as they survey the land, it has been completely devastated from what it used to be. It used to be full of life. Now there is nothing, and there's a great scene where Timon scratches his head and says, you're going to fight your uncle for this? And then he says this, boy, talk about your fixer-upper. And in many ways, yet much greater ways, that is the story of God's people in the Old Testament. God intended for his people, Israel, to be set apart from all other nations. But after centuries of rebelling against God, God allowed them to go into exile, into Babylon. For 70 years, they lived in captivity, yet finally they are returning home. Because of devastation... They had been left. Three men, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, had a lot of work to do to restore Jerusalem. And so each of these three men sought out to restore different aspects of the fixer-upper, which was Jerusalem. Zerubbabel showed up and he rebuilt the temple. Ezra showed up many, many years later and rebuilt the people around the word of God. And then Nehemiah showed up even later and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. As I said on week one, Ezra and Nehemiah cover three different waves of returning exiles from 538 B.C. all the way to 433 B.C., meaning that Ezra and Nehemiah cover around over 100 years of history. Let me just show you a slide that gives you the three waves of the returning exiles. Just to let you kind of wrap your head around it. So in 538 B.C., the people led by Zerubbabel, he is the governor, come back and begin to rebuild the temple. So 80 years after that, Ezra, who this book is named after, he shows up in Ezra 7, Ezra returns where his primary aim is to lead the people to obey the law of God. He rebuilds the heart of the people. And then 13 years after Ezra, in 445 B.C., Nehemiah returns 
with the purpose of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So as we've heard, Ezra is a book that describes how God moved to restore his people at the lowest point in their history. When they were in exile, when they were 900 miles away from their home and Jerusalem, their home was in ruins. God stepped in to restore it, the city of Jerusalem, and to restore them, his people. And what we have seen so far is the people have returned to Jerusalem. We have seen them rebuilt the altar of God. We have seen them lay a new foundation for the temple. The logical next step would be for the temple to re be rebuilt on this new foundation. But unfortunately, we have to step back and say, well, not so fast, my friend, because Ezra 4 is now a story of opposition. They were finally back in Jerusalem. They were finally starting to rebuild their lives around God. And just as things were getting started, the future looked great, and then opposition came. The peoples that were around them tried to work their way into their midst and to corrupt their worship, to discourage them, and really to stop the work. You know, Isaac Newton's third law of motion states, and, and you can kind of say it along with me, that for, for every action there is an equal, so equal and opposite reaction. Did you know that that is also a spiritual law? It's a spiritual law as well, meaning that every time God begins to do a work, Satan also begins to do an opposite work. When, when God does a work in our lives, Satan comes right alongside and tries to lead us in the opposite way. Someone has said that every time God builds a church, Satan builds one right next door. It's just the way he works. But one of the most challenging truths taught in Scripture is that sometimes God allows us to face opposition and hardship even when we're desperate for renewal. And even more challenging is the idea that God uses that hardship and God uses that opposition to accomplish renewal in our lives. For when we encounter opposition, we are forced to depend on the Lord and not depend on ourselves. And hear this, anytime you and I depend on the Lord, even when we're forced to, it brings glory to God. Anytime we are forced or depend on the Lord in our lives, God is glorified because when we depend on him, he always comes through. He always comes through. So when opposition comes, we should expect it, we should understand it, and above all, we should draw near to God in it and through it. And I love the words of Derek Kidner who says this, and we'll have it on the screen. He says, from this point on, meaning from Ezra 4 all the way of course, until Nehemiah, to the end of Nehemiah, from this point onward, right to the end of Nehemiah, there is conflict. Nothing that is attempted for God will now go unchallenged and scarcely a tactic be unexplored by the opposition. So from this point forward, we're going to see opposition after opposition after opposition. So we're about to dive into Ezra 4. And let me just say this. This is a difficult chapter. In fact, I have preached through the book of Nehemiah before. I've never preached through the book of Ezra, and now I know why. Because it is a hard book. It's a hard book. And today we come to a hard chapter. And I just pray that we will take the truths that kind of rise up and that we would soak in them and apply them to our lives. But if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. You can either see this verses right in front of you or on the screen. Beginning at verse 1, it says this. 
Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And since we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here, but Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. For we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the way or all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Mithridath, and Tabil, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shemshai, the, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shemshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Eric, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greetings. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundation. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. In order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Then the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander, to Shemshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates who lived in Samaria, and the rest of the province beyond the river, greetings. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition has been made in it, and mighty Kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow in, to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even though, God, there's a lot there. Just lead us, we pray, into truth. 
Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Illuminate, God, your word, we pray. Just speak, O God, for we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So this chapter, strangely enough, is arranged not not chronologically. We've seen all the way from and we'll continue to see after, but it's, it's arranged thematically. And more on that later. But the theme here is the attempt of the enemy to corrupt the work that is being done. Meaning that when that work, or when it doesn't work, it becomes basically we're going to corrupt it, the worship, then we're going to discourage the, the workers, and then we just want to see the work stop all together. Yet it begins with the discouragement of God's people. There's an old story about the devil and the demons getting together, having a meeting, and the demons ask Satan what his most effective tool that he used to stop mankind from doing God's will. And the devil answered the demon and says, the most effective tool that I have is discouragement. And he said, if I quit using everything else, I could still stop the work of God if I am able to depress and discourage God's people. Discouragement, by definition, is a lack or deficit of courage. So biblical courage is the ability for us to face uncertainty, us to face adversity, danger, even suffering with a faith-fueled hope that God will keep his word, whatever may come, therefore we persevere. So that is the picture of biblical courage. Yet, let me just say this this morning, let me confess all of our sins. We oftentimes are not always of good courage. In fact, we're not even always of even bad courage. We just sometimes have no courage whatsoever. But Satan comes at us trying to discourage us. And if we take discouragement into our lives, it can be costly. Think of discouragement as your faith being choked out. So if you are choking, let's say you have something lodged in your throat, that is not the time to sit in front of your TV with a gallon of ice cream. No, in that moment, you need to dislodge the obstruction so that you can breathe. You need to fight for your life. You might even need to get someone to give you the Heimlich in that moment. In the same way, listen, we must not and we cannot let discouragement choke us out. In fact, discouragement is dislodged from us when we believe the truth of God's word. We dislodge discouragement when we believe the promises of God and when we obey him. So today in Ezra 4, we see the return exiles now in the line of fire but they're exactly where god put them the enemy is determined to stop the work of god through opposition through accusations ultimately again through discouragement so what i want to do today is i want to unpack three truths that kind of three pictures really that that rise up in this chapter that i know without a doubt that we can relate to we can apply and we can walk in first is this adversaries rise up adversaries rise up the bible makes it very clear from the very beginning that there has always been and there will always be those who oppose god and those who oppose his work so opposition to god's plans might be expected for any who are choosing to follow him in this chapter in ezra 4 conflict begins with an offer of help from from neighbors now we know those neighbors as Samaritans. 
So they come on the scene, and in verses 1 and 2, you'll see on the screen it says, Now when the adversaries heard that they returned, or that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's house and said to them, Let us build with you. But notice how Ezra describes these people who are making this offer. He calls them, and the ESV, he calls them adversaries. In other versions, he calls them enemies. So these enemies were not ready to let go of the land that they had lived in and owned for 70 years. And Samaritans throughout the Bible were famous for blending pagan religions along with the worship of Israel's God. In verse 2, these adversaries actually tell the exiles, they say, we worship your God as you do. We have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. So they claim that they worship the same God that the exiles worship. The problem is, listen, they, they probably even believed it. But that's not what the Bible says. In 2 Kings 17, we're told a different story. In fact, let me show you 2 Kings 17, 33 and 34. And speaking about these people, it says this. So they fear the Lord but also serve their own gods. Now, can we pause for a second before we read any more and say that most of us can put two and two together and say, if you fear, if you say you fear the Lord and you are worshiping other gods, then you aren't doing what? You're not fearing the Lord. So there's no fear of the Lord if you are worshiping other gods. So they worship their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord. They do not follow the statutes of the rules of the laws of the commandments that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So they offer to help build Israel's temple. But it's not an act of charity here. It's a way to ensure the preservation of their own religion. They want their religion to, to continue to persevere. And for these adversaries, please hear this, for these adversaries, the temple of the Lord was not about the Lord. It was about them. It had become a, about them. And I wonder whether we, if we're honest enough, can we see a little bit of ourselves and the inhabitants and, and their attitude, the attitude of the inhabitants of the land? Listen, is what is happening in our church today, is it about God or has it become about you? When you don't get your way, do you support the church or do you sow seeds of negativity and discouragement? Do you look at ministry as a way to promote yourself or do you look at ministry as a way to serve God and praise him, serve his people? Have you even been led to believe that if somehow, some way you weren't around, the ministry that you were part of would cease to exist? As if God is completely dependent upon you to make it happen. Let me tell you how we can know where our focus is. Check your heart when you don't get your way, and check your heart when other people get recognition. What does your heart do? When you don't get your way, what does your heart do? Or when other people get recognized, what does your heart do? Does your heart rejoice because God is using those other people and his work is being done? Or do you become envious that God would dare ever use anybody but you? Listen, if you envy, if you discourage, if you frustrate, doesn't it indicate that we're more interested in us and our kingdom than we are his? If we are fighting for our way and our names, we're not fighting for 
this. And what I pray that we see from this is that the adversary is real and working in a very real way to either keep us away from the work of God. And when we are kept away from the work of God, we aren't experiencing the work of the enemy. Or the enemy is working in ways by which to keep us under his assault, so discouraging us that we just give up altogether. Now, many of you here, you know my love for all things A.W. Tozer. I love all things A.W. Tozer. He was a man and pastor who lived early and mid 20th centuries, but in the 20th century, mid-20th century, he pastored a church in Chicago, and he was going through a, a sermon series. In the middle of the sermon series, he told his congregation this, and I love these words. He said, I have literally felt Satan attempting to thwart the purpose of God. I have felt I was in raw contact with hell. I would rather have it this way than to have to admit, as some of you have to admit, that you've never met the devil once in open combat. In my preparation, there have been struggles and combat, moans and pains. I think that is the conflict of Jesus being relived in his people. But I will tell you something. It is a delightful thing when you know that you are close enough to the adversary that you can hear him roar. Too many Christians never get into lion country at all. And he's, I, those words, I'd rather have to admit that I'm being attacked by Satan than have to admit that I have never felt his opposition at all. Have you ever made it into lion country? God's people were there once again. Adversaries are rising up once again. So adversaries rise up. Then the second picture, number two, accusations are made. So accusations are made. So this chapter now, as I said, breaks from strict chronological telling of the story to describe a hundred years in the future. So what we see now is a hundred years of threats, sabotage, slanders, and defeat of those whose hearts were set on rebuilding the temple. If you want uh, chronology here, you go from verse 3 and then skip all the way to verse 24 and you have chronology. You take everything else out, but we're not going to do that because Ezra doesn't do that. In this chapter, we have a mismatch of opposition and accusations that take place during the reign of basically four kings. You have Cyrus, you have Darius, you have Ahasuerus, and you have Artaxerxes. So in verses 1 to 5, you have enemies of Judah under the reigns of Cyrus and Darius use intimidation and bribery to frustrate the work. Then you look at verse 6, and verse 6, we're introduced to a king by the name of Ahasuerus, and all of this happened during the reign of one that we know as Esther. The book of Esther is written during the reign of Ahasuerus. So the, the picture is this. All of this took place in Esther 50 years after the temple was built. And so 50 years after the temple was built, during the time of Esther, the people lodged a complaint. And the accusations in verse 6 that we read aren't just about just the Jews becoming a nuisance. No, they wanted a holocaust. They wanted the Jews to be wiped out. So in the book of Esther, we have a decree that is made where all the Jews are going to die. They're going to be wiped out completely. Then we look at verse 7. So beginning in verse 7, the later examples are under Artaxerxes. And it's not about the temple being built now. It's now about the walls of the temple being built. And who helped do that? Nehemiah. So during the days of Nehemiah. So we have this picture, and I, some of you are thinking, I could, 
like care less about what you're saying. This is nice and good. You know, the history part of it really doesn't stir me up at all. And the reason I mention this, not only, number one, because my sister is here who is the history teacher, and last week we talked about all things of all of the kings of Persia, and she was just telling me all of these different things. But it's a reminder to us that, listen, what we're reading is historical. These aren't just a bunch of made-up fairy tales. This is history that is taking place, that is happening here. So in the midst of the rebellion, in the midst of the king Artaxerxes, a letter is sent to him from the enemies of the Jews. And this letter is sent to him basically making an accusation in verse 12, verse 15, and verse 19, basically saying the Jews, they are a rebellious people. Listen, if, if you know biblical history, Here's what you know. That is a true statement. They were a rebellious people, but not just rebellious against Assyria and the Babylonians. Ultimately, they were rebellious against God. They had rebelled against God, and it was their rebellion against God that had led them into Babylonian captivity. That is why they were there. But think about these accusations that are being made against the people. And then let me show you a greater accusation that was made during this very time period, but it's an accusation that also is made against us today. Now, during this time period, what we're going to read next week is we're going to be introduced to two prophets who God raises up during this time, Haggai and Zechariah. And during this time, Zechariah is raised up, and he begins to, to proclaim to the people during this time. And in Zechariah chapter 3, we read it this week, but let me show you. I'm going to put it on the screen. I want you to hear these words. Zechariah has this vision, and here's what he sees. Then he showed me Joshua, that's the high priest during this time, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What a scene. Joshua, the high priest of the people, is standing before God in filthy rags. And those filthy rags not only represented the priesthood at the time. Remember, there was no priesthood for 70 years. It also represented the spiritual condition of the people at that time, meaning they were filthy. And here he is standing in filthy rags before God. And that would be bad enough, but Satan is right beside him saying, God, look at the filth. God, look at this filth. Look how nasty he is. And I don't know if you know this, but in Revelation 12, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Meaning, this is what Satan still does today. He accuses us. He accuses us of our filth. He accuses us of our past, bringing it back up to us over and over and over again. I love the words of Charles Spurgeon here. He says, when Satan accuses, Christ pleads. He does not wait till the case has gone against us and then express his regret, but he is always a very present help in times of trouble. Jesus knows the heart of Satan being omniscient God, and long before Satan can accuse, Jesus begins his defense. The blessed plea on our behalf and stays the action till he gives an answer which silences forever every 
accusation against us. I don't know if you know this, brothers and sisters, but one of Satan's biggest tactics is to remind us of our sins, to remind us of our past. He brings them ever before us in thought, in deed, and he continually afflicts our minds with our past sins. Yet here's the beauty. In Zechariah 3, we have a picture of God's response. God had forgiven Israel and praise him. He has or he will forgive us. The mercy of God is so far-reaching. It goes to the deepest parts of our past, even the parts that we try to keep hidden. It goes that far, and His mercy cleanses us, removing what once defiled us. Let me say this this morning. I, I believe you need to hear this today. Don't let the enemy redress you in your past sins. Stop letting the enemy redress you in your past sins if you confess them they're gone they're gone if you haven't confessed them confess them now and they will be taken away god won't remember them that's what his word says therefore stand against those thoughts of destruction that satan tries to bring and instead of believing him believe what god says about you Believe what God has declared over you. Walk in freedom. Let me give you this. Start living in, pur in purpose and stop living in the past. Start living in purpose and stop living in the past. Yes, Satan accuses. He accuses us all. But praise be the God. God forgives. He forgives. Cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So accusations are made, which leads to number three. The work is abandoned. The work is abandoned. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, it says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So now this chapter ends by returning us back to the beginning, back to past all the 100 years of the future history, back to the beginning of this, the opposition where the temple of the Lord will now sit unfinished for almost 16 years. Nothing being done, the house of God, for over 16 years. And over and over again in Scripture, in His wisdom, in His love, God writes stories that require us to wait an awful long time. Over and over again, God writes stories that make us wait. Like, all of a sudden, God moves us and moves us and gives our heart courage and joy. And we step out and we're like, "Woo! I'm ready to go. God's going to use me. And then all of a sudden, God hits the pause button. And we're like, what? Like, I was ready to go. Like, I was ready to charge hell with a water pistol. I mean, that's how excited I was. And then God says, stop. It makes us wait. And it doesn't make sense in those moments. And I don't want to get ahead of myself because of where we'll be next week, but after almost 16 years of the temple standing untouched, do you know what got things going again? After 16 years, the temple not even being touched, here's what got things going again. A word from God. God spoke through the prophet Haggai, through the prophet Zechariah, and the people began to do the work again. And let me end this way. I want to end this morning by giving us three lessons that we see here in Ezra 4. And these won't be on the screen, but just write these down or try to memorize them really, really quick. Three lessons. Number one is this. There will always be opposition. 
There will always be opposition. If you are seeking to do the work of the Lord, there will always be opposition. We need to know this because if we don't know this, we will fall in the trap of believing that, okay, I tried to obey God, everything broke loose, so therefore I'm going to wait until things calm down, and then I'll serve the Lord again. Let me just be very clear. If you think you're going to wait until things get easy for you to serve the Lord, you'll never serve the Lord. You'll never serve the Lord because the second you begin to get serious about the Lord, Satan will get serious about you. And there will always be opposition. There always will be opposition. But then secondly, the second truth is this. Opposition does not mean that God has abandoned us. So opposition doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. Think about what God is doing at this moment in Ezra 4. God wanted to build the temple, the temple to be rebuilt. So he stirred up the heart of a pagan king. Then he stirred the hearts of almost 40, over 40,000 people to return to Jerusalem. The rise of this resistance did not mean that God had abandoned his people or that God was mad at his people. No, this was what God was using to do a work in his people. Don't interpret opposition as God telling you to stop. Sometimes we need to interpret opposition as we're heading in the right direction. We're going the way God would have us to go. Before we look at number three, let me ask you two questions today. Number one, has God stopped his work in you? Has God stopped his work in you? And let me answer that question by quoting a verse in Philippians 1.6 that says this, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Therefore, God has not stopped his work in you. God, he's doing a work. If you are his child, God will finish his work in you. So really the question isn't, has God stopped his work in me? Here's the, the question. Have I stopped my work for him? Have I stopped my work for him? Are you doing the work that God has called you to do? Here's what I believe with all of my heart. I believe with all of my heart, if you are sitting here today as a child of God, it's because God has a purpose for you. If he didn't have a purpose for you, you wouldn't be here. We've already had your funeral. And you'd be in the ground or you'd be on a mantle somewhere in some way because you are here means God still has a purpose for you are you fulfilling that work have you stopped your work for him listen yes it gets tough yes discouragement sets in in all of our lives yes church hurt happens to all of us every single one of us have been hurt by churches let me give you a little eye-opening thing here do you know that the person in every church that's been hurt by church hurt the most the pastor and yet in most churches the, the pastor faithfully week in and week out even in discouraged stands up and gives the word of god Let, let's stop using excuses to do the things that god has called us to do but then number three opposition and the, the discouragement that comes with it can be overcome by faithful perseverance in the work of God by faithful perseverance in the work of God listen I don't mean to be a downer here but if you're not discouraged about something right now then you're probably in the minority that's how common discouragement is right discouragement happens in all of our lives it can happen just in a moment's notice as something sweeps into our lives and we are discouraged 
Again, C.S. Lewis in, in screw tape letters gives this picture of discouragement being the most effective weapon of the devil. In fact, he writes this. The adversary doesn't need to get us to rebel or hate God. He only needs to distract us with discouragement. The enemy doesn't need to get us to rebel or hate God. He needs just to get us to become discouraged. In fact, Derek, Derek Kidner also said this. And this, when I read this quote this week, this hit me in so many different ways. I'm going to put it on the screen. And it says this. Just hear this. Satan lurks behind the scenes. And as his frequent strategy is content to lie hidden, hoping that the Lord's servants will forget all about him and take their frustration out on God instead. Think about that, brothers and sisters, that we there's times in our lives that we forget that the enemy is the enemy. What is what is Ephesians 6 says? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, meaning even when you become an enemy to me, you're not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. And I'm supposed to love you. I'm supposed to show the love of Christ to you. Even you might be the most hateful person to me, but you aren't the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. But here's the problem. Sometimes we begin to get frustrated at God because God doesn't do what we want him to do when we want him to do it, and we take it out on him as if he's the enemy. God isn't the enemy. He is our greatest good, and he will forever be our greatest good. May we trust him in the moment. What, what right now is tempting you towards discouragement today? What's tempting you to discouragement today? Are you having a hard time believing that God will work all things for good in the midst of all the bad things that you're experiencing. It's like bad thing, bad thing, bad thing, bad thing. Oh, God will work it all to good, all for good? Sure. But he will. He will. That's what he promises. All things together for good. Every bad thing, every stupid thing that we do, all things together for good. And let me give you one last, one last little lesson here. We overcome discouragement when we stop focusing on what we want to happen and start focusing on what God has promised will happen. Stop focusing on what you want to happen and start focusing on what God says will happen. Listen, circumstances do not control you, Jesus does. Circumstances do not get the last word over your life, Jesus does. And here is my prayer, brothers and sisters. May Jesus' last word over all of us be this. Well done, good and faithful servant. I tell this story a lot, but I, I will never forget this. Many, many, many years ago, probably 15 plus years ago, we were in a church service on a Sunday night, and I was doing a message about fear. And I started the way I normally do, hey, give your fears. And of course, I began with mine, fear of snakes. I mean, if you want to see me run out a window or make a exit, just show up with a snake and service is over. Like snakes, no. And other people began to say, you know, I'm scared of spiders and this and that. And, you know, it was very lighthearted from the standpoint of our fears. And then I will never forget, right here in the middle, on this side, a man raised his hand. I called on him, and he stood. And he said, my greatest fear is that I will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I tell you, it went from lighthearted to heavy in that moment. And ever, ever since then, that, those words just echo in my heart. Oh, that that would be my fear, that standing before God and not hearing, well done, good and faithful servant.
May that be our aim. But if that is our aim, it means this, that we're doing the work. That we're persevering in the work that God has given us to do, and we're doing it together. Together. As a people of God. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. We're going to call the band forward as we enter this time of invitation. And let us pray in this moment. Father, we thank you for your word. As confusing and deep as it might be, we thank you that your word is living and powerful. And Lord, you're speaking in and through your word, showing us that there is an enemy. Accusations will come at our lives. There will be times where the work that we're doing for you, if we're not careful, we will stop it. But maybe this, maybe just maybe that right now is a holy moment in our lives. A moment where we once again do the work that you've called us to do. We come back to that. But we begin a work today. You're doing a work in us, God. May we say yes to what we know you're calling us to do. Just finish this time. In Jesus' name.